Bocas del Toro, Panama. A secluded seaside hideaway, Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Tree Fort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. A note to our listeners, this podcast contains graphic audio. Last one, two on command, priority. Go ahead. Copy, we are evacuating the building to the north, the Blue Green Hotel. My firefighters go door to door, get everybody out. We do have people on the balcony shouting that they are trapped inside of their apartments. There is no insert away for their food state, and there is a danger of collapse. Tommy, we set up the perimeter and we're keeping everybody back with help from TV. But we do have people that are coming out on the balconies of the building collapse. The state, they do not have a way to get out of their apartments on the interior. I copy. Command, do we have the staging in the room? The building is at risk for a further collapse. Stay your ground, keep in a safe spot. We will get to those individuals. Notify them the best that you can at this time. In the aftermath of the collapse of Champlain Tower South, fire and rescue crews faced a terrible dilemma. They had to balance the rush to get people out of the part of the building that didn't fall with the risk that it could come down at any second. Hours of audio recordings from fire dispatch captured the urgency and complexity of the massive response. First responders are pouring into the tiny town of Surfside. More than 80 emergency units from all over the region, even their bomb squads, even the FBI, because nobody had any idea what had brought this building down. Rescue teams plunged into the smoking wreckage. Go ahead, Kevin. And I worked my way over to Powell and reconned east and south of your location. We haven't found anything yet. We, we got two ambulatory people uh, coming out of the parking garage. I'm going to hand them off to engine 7 on the south side. Copy. All ambulatory people will go on the north west corner of 88th Street in Collins. There's a triage center set up there. North west corner. While fire and rescue teams worked to pull people out of the danger zone, Surfside police officers were stopping people who wanted to get closer to it. Their body cameras were rolling as they set up a perimeter where they were met by people who were desperate for information. Okay. How can I'm I sorry. get a message them to look for my mom? Uh, here's, here's what... It, it doesn't look like she's... The building... It looks like her line is down. At this point, all that's visible from the police line is a massive pile of twisted metal and crushed concrete. Dust hangs in the air 
where some 80 apartments stood just hours before. Family members like this woman whose mother lived on the sixth floor were simply in shock. The police officer lets her husband move their car to the other side of the line before the woman simply breaks down into her arms. Can I take her car and just put it right here at this corner? I will allow you to do that. Thank yes. you. Here, do you want to, here, come here. That's my <laughs> Because I think she's the side and like the second one and it just looks like the first balcony's there and the second one's not. Well, are they able to pull anybody out? They're they're working on it. They're working on it. Maybe in the but you can't. Minutes. But you can't. You can't get close down there. Yeah. They have it. They have it blocked off. Yeah. I'm sorry. Me too. Uh, I just looked our last night. Like just like if this is our build. Like if this was it. Just it's this. It's the second one. That's hers, and that's not there. This scene encapsulates the terrible and arbitrary truth of this tragedy. For many, the difference between life and death in Champlain Towers South was merely a matter of living one door farther down the hall. I'm Paul Beban, and from the Miami Herald and Treefort Media, this is Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. We've covered a lot of disasters, and for many of them, we kind of have a playbook. Rick Hirsch worked at the Miami Herald for 42 years. But on the morning of June 24th, 2021, even a veteran like Hirsch was in disbelief. We know what we're going to do when a hurricane is approaching, and we know what we're going to do when it's supposed to make landfall. Surfside was different. We had never seen anything like this. So when the story broke, it defied the imagination. You know it's big, but... Can you imagine a 13-story building collapsing? No. I mean, that's never happened. How would you ever imagine that that could have happened? As managing editor, it was Hirsch's job to coordinate the Herald's coverage, which he decided to divide into three parts. One was, why did the building fall down? What happened? What caused that? The big question that we're still trying to answer. The second was to focus on the victims, and we wanted to respectfully tell the stories of those people and their lives and their families as best we could. And the third aspect, and this was the breaking news story, to report deeply on the search and rescue effort and the day in, day out at the site. For that, Hirsch called senior editor Dave Wilson. Wilson's regular beat is politics and Florida state government. But he's also an expert at running coverage on big breaking stories. We quickly ran through... The moves that had been made already, he told me that we had one reporter, Joey Fletches, on the scene. The first challenge was to get more reporters awake, aware, and then deployed. The words we use in those circumstances do sound an awful lot like the military. We are mustering troops. We are deploying our resources. We are trying to cover the landscape of everything. I'm not going to call it a battlefield, but that image is in my head. At that hour, there just weren't that many details. Joey Fletches, the only Herald reporter on the scene at that point, was on the front side of the building, and he couldn't see the collapse in the back. As he started waking up more reporters, 
Wilson flicked on his TV. I turned on local news. It was early in the morning, but they had choppers up, and I could get a visual of the scene. So we've got a 10, 12-story building that half of it's in a pile, and it happened in the middle of the night, so those apartments had to be occupied. This was not going to be good. This, this looked like a miniature version of the Twin Towers. And we had to figure out how to cover that to flood the zone with as many people as I can get there as quickly as I can. We have people injured or loss of life. So one of the first moves is I got to get somebody to the hospital. I was able to reach Doug Hanks, our county hall reporter. If you get a call from Dave Wilson at 6 in the morning, something bad has happened. Senior editor Dave Wilson sent reporter Doug Hanks to Miami's biggest trauma center, Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is about 12 miles away from the collapse in Surfside. On his way, Hanks started calling sources. I hung up with him, and I thought, what are we talking about? Because I cover the county government. So I texted the mayor, Danielle Levine-Cava, and said, what do you know? And she responded there was a partial collapse of a building with 12 stories. You know, that's something we've never heard of here. Right away, I knew this is, this is, this is big. This is big. This is not um, a minor situation. While Hanks headed to the hospital, Wilson worked his list and got more reporters to the scene. I knew we needed many people there, not just one. And one of the first that I was able to reach was Samantha Gross, who I knew lived a very short distance away from the Surfside Tower. The adrenaline really just kicked in. I started to just get out of bed, pack a bag as fast as I could. I packed notebooks and pens and my computer. I saw Joey making some calls and we kind of greeted each other with this um, kind of mutual understanding that we knew it was going to be a long day. Joey Fletches was still on the street side of the building, talking with police and firefighters and whomever else he could find. He and Samantha Gross decided that she would try to make her way to the beach side of the building to get a look at the collapse and send some pictures to the Herald. I crossed through Oceanside Park and walked up the bike path to see how close I could get to the back of the building. And that was about the time that the sun was starting to rise over the ocean and it cast a kind of filtered light over the building and I was able to see the rubble it was the first time that I've ever seen anything of that magnitude. It was just so much concrete and steel, but also personal affects like furniture and clothing. And it was very quiet. It almost looked like a building had been sawed in half with a knife, like, you know, kind of a cut open dollhouse. Laying my eyes on that building for the first time is something I will never get out of my head. That's where all of these people who were still alive at that time in the morning were waiting to be rescued. By that time, rescue crews had been methodically, carefully working their way through the building, floor by floor, apartment by apartment, for hours. Copy that. Command to Special Ops, did you get the uh, rapid tools for forcible entry? Special Ops, the command affirmative, we got the rapid tools. Copy. Special Ops, the K-9 group. Special Ops, the K-9. Go for K-9. 
Your attic ladders are staged uh, at the gate on the Charlie side. Twelve six and nine, but twelve. Twelve for twelve. Oh, apartment seven oh six through seven oh nine are all clear. Going to the eighth floor. Copy. Search to special ops. You copy seventh floor is all clear. Special ops copy seven zero six oh seven oh eight oh nine are clear. On the ninth floor. Janet Rodriguez had been waiting since being shaken out of bed hours before. Rodriguez, a home health aide for an elderly woman, was half asleep at about 1.15 a.m. when she heard and felt a roar. It was about 20 minutes after she had gone to bed, and I had as well, when we felt the great wave. I swore that it was like a wave. It felt like a wave. Like when you go into the water and you feel the waves are moving you, like boom, like that. At the same time, it felt like a bomb, you know? As she went to wake her employer, the building heaved a second time. So I go to her and I say, Eliza, something has happened. So right then, when I'm standing in front of her bed, as she is trying to get up, the other one comes, even stronger. That other one shook the town of Surfside for blocks. Anne Citron was staying up the street in Champlain Towers North. She'd just driven in from Tampa with her husband and two friends. She told radio station WLRN they were about to go to sleep when something rattled the building. There was a huge rumble, like if a, a military plane was passing like really low, and then another bigger rumble. Um, and then the alarms went off and I went to the window to see, but we were on this side so we can't see anything. Um, and then we go to the staircase and there's all this dust in the staircase. And you go outside and fire trucks pulling up and there's people outside and people saying they were trapped. There was people on their backways with flashlights, with their phones, um, just waiting to be rescued, calling out that they couldn't get down. That's exactly what Rodriguez and the elderly woman she cared for were doing. They were waving their cell phones, trying to signal rescuers on the ground. We started to shine our lights because the firemen below or the police, I don't know, they were shining their lights at us. So I said, Eliza, see how they are shining their lights? Let's shine ours back so they can see us. So we started to shine our lights, me more, and her a little bit, because she can't walk very much. And so she said, Janet, let's sit down and pray. She is Jewish, and so she said, you your Catholic prayers and me mine. It sounded like thunder to us, like so much thunder. Meanwhile, down below, Herald reporter Joey Fletches had struck up a conversation with a man who'd caught his eye in the pre-dawn hours. There was a man who came up, and uh, he didn't look like he was there to report on anything. He didn't have any equipment or anything. I, I just approached him and made some conversation. It was still pretty dark out. We couldn't even see each other that well, other than the emergency lights that were, were still flashing all over. But he started to tell me that he had gone around to the beach side and seen the backside of the building. Uh, he was the first person that provided 
me an image of what it looked like back there. Uh, and it was just this breathtaking image to see on someone's cell phone. He had snuck back there before they had even cut off all access. And so I said, do you know someone who's in the building? He says, not in the part that fell down, but my wife is still up there. And he was pointing at the part of the building on the front side that was still standing. The man's name was Santos Mejia, and his wife was Janeth Rodriguez, the home health aide who was trapped on the ninth floor. More media were arriving every minute now. Camera crews and reporters were trying to talk to anyone with firsthand knowledge of what was going on inside the building. Mejia told CNN on Espanol what he recalled from those first frantic moments of the morning. I know that my wife called me at like 1.15 a.m. telling me something terrible had happened. I asked what it was. She said, I don't know. It seems like an earthquake and everything is dark. I can't see anything. And so I said, don't worry, I'll come right over. After the call, I got there and I saw the damage, fire trucks, police, everything. So where it happened here, right behind me, they wouldn't let me pass, but I looked around to see how I could get closer, and I found a spot where I hoped I could see her, but I was not able to find her. Somebody who lived in the building, a renter or owner, said to me, come, I'll bring you around. And the part I was looking at, that is where everything had fallen. You, you can see, I mean, you have to see it to believe it. There has to be so many people that are dead. Fletches and Mejia waited anxiously together. He was communicating with her uh, via cell phone, and she was trying to get down. She was trying to get the attention of emergency responders who were on the ground to help her come down somehow. And he was worried. He was telling me that he sped across the causeway. You know, no car could really take him fast enough to get to, to Surfside that morning. Up on the ninth floor, Janet Rodriguez and a neighbor were peering down the damaged hallway, trying to figure out what had happened. At first, Rodriguez thought she was looking at open doorways to dark, empty apartments across the hall that other neighbors had fled. But then she realized that the darkness was the night sky outside, where the apartments had fallen. She says, Miss, where is the lady Eliza? So I tell her, she's in the bedroom. She tells me, there was an earthquake. What? I say. An earthquake? You felt it? Yes, I felt it, she says to me. Look how the elevators fell. And I see that. And she says that the whole part over there fell down. But I thought that what I was seeing over there with all the doors open was that the people had all left. But no. It was that the apartments had all fallen away. There was darkness there. Special ops, the command. Go for special ops. So we've cleared a, a total of five floors entirely. So about half of the building has uh, been searched, with the exception of the units that are inaccessible to the class. Can you confirm which floors have been cleared? The fourth floor, the fifth floor, the seventh floor, the eleventh floor, and the penthouse floor. On each of those floors, it's unit 06, 08, and 09 that have been cleared. Uh, Units 01, 02, 03, 04, and 05 on each floor are inaccessible. 
copy that. Let me know if you need more resources. Four, maintain 06 through 809 are all clear. Heading to the ninth floor. Copy. When you're done with the ninth floor, let me know. The interior of the building was a maze of damaged stairwells and blocked hallways. It took nearly four hours for crews to reach the ninth floor. When they got there, they helped Rodriguez and her employer down the stairs to the fifth floor, where a rescue platform, what Rodriguez calls the basket, could reach them. At about five in the morning, they came to rescue us. Oh, and we were so happy to see the firemen. And then the firemen said to us, we're not here just to rescue you. We're here to rescue everyone. The building is in very bad condition. We have to hurry. So we have to get out as soon as we can. We passed by the elevators again. And the firefighters said, don't look around. It's very bad. It's just going to make you more nervous. And then we're going to have to go and pass through some rubble. Listen to me. Those stairs were rubble. The firefighters were so nice. They practically carried us down. They did so much, the firemen, getting us out of that building, because that building was so bad. They risked their lives. And they told us that, don't worry, we are almost safe. And then, when we were in the basket, they said, you guys are safe now, close your eyes, because we're going to lower you down. And so the lady says, no, mine are already closed. So we were finally getting down, thank God. And the lady, when we get down to the ground, she just kept praying, thanking God that we were alive. Joey Fletches was with Rodriguez's husband, Santos Mejia, when his phone rang. He got a phone call, and uh, he answers, and it was his wife. And he said, are you coming? Are you coming? She goes, they're bringing us down now. And he just started crying, and he was just, yes, thank God, thank God. You know, he said, she's coming down. And it was just a remarkable moment to witness in those early hours when just, I'm thinking this is gonna go in the story as fast as I can possibly get it because you're thinking about responsibly communicating what's going on here. Like some people are still alive in there. It's a dangerous place, but they're getting some people out and some lives are being saved. Who knows what's gonna happen? The rest of the building could fall right before our eyes. It was stories like these, stories that captured the human drama that was playing out that senior editor Dave Wilson wanted his reporters to get in real time. One of the stories that I wanted was something that put me there with a survivor, somebody who got out of the building somehow. What was that experience? We've got the world-class urban search and rescue teams from Miami-Dade Fire Rescue who deploy all over the world to do this work. So I knew, okay, if anybody's gonna get people out of there alive, it's gonna be Miami-Dade Fire. Some residents were able to make their way out on their own. Navigating the shattered building was a dangerous race against time. I was uh, awakened by, at like 1.15 a.m. to the building shaking. Um, the walls were moving. Um, I, I grabbed my wife, she jumped out of bed and checked on the kids. Um, the kids were fine, they had actually been awake. Um, but the chandeliers and the pendulum lights in the room were completely um, swaying back and forth. 
I looked out onto the balcony, and the entire building is covered by a gray cloud. Albert Aguero told TV station NBC6 that he was staying with his wife, son, and daughter in apartment 1106. Um, my original thought was the building got struck by lightning because we had lost power, um, and, that was, and then we got the thunder, and that was what we heard. Um, when I stepped out on the balcony and I saw the fire trucks arriving, uh, at that point, um, I went outside and I asked them, do we need to evacuate? But when I opened, I realized it wasn't smoke and it was actually, um, you know, concrete dust. Um, the fire, firefighters said, yeah, absolutely, evacuate. Yelled back, grab your stuff, we got to go. Uh, we grabbed our phone, wallet, and keys. That was it. Um, a few of them grabbed chargers, and we were able to make it out. The minute we opened the door is when we realized something happened to our building. Um, I looked outside, and I looked to my left, and half of the apartment is gone to my left. Um, looked forward, and the elevator shaft is there, and there's no elevator. It's just two holes. Um, so now, now I think panic starts to set in, like we need to really run because I don't know if the rest of it's coming down. We got to uh, the stairwell and when we opened the door, that's when everything really hit because half the wall to the stairwell is missing. It's kind of open air stairs. Um, so now we're just racing down as fast as possible. We got to the about the third floor uh, and there was a 25 year old hugging a elderly lady. Um, and trying to bring her down the stairs. She asked if we could help. So my son and I were able to uh, get her down to the first floor. The first floor had probably collapsed like three feet. Um, so now we had to crawl up rubble um, with this elderly lady and get her up over that. Um, we, we hopped over, uh, walked outside to the pool area, and now there was a huge gap, about three foot. Um, where uh, that was really kind of a challenge. Um, what we did is we let him go. My wife and, and my son went forward uh, first. Um, they pulled on the elderly woman while I pushed. We got her up over the, the hole. And then I don't know where you were, if you were ahead, right, I think. Um, and then it was just make it jump over and then sprint to the beach just because you don't know. Wow, we were so lucky. Um, we've talked about it and we say it's about 15 feet that we've survived by. Um, if we had been 15 feet to, to the right, it would, have, it would have gone down. By around 6 a.m., everyone in the standing section of the building had been evacuated, and the full focus was on the mountain of rubble that stood some two stories high. In the first few minutes after crews arrived, just four people were pulled out of the debris alive. Two were taken to Jackson Memorial Hospital, a mother and daughter who survived falling from the ninth floor to the fifth. A teenage boy and his mother were found buried near the top of the wreckage and were taken to another hospital. The boy survived, his mother did not. At one point, rescuers heard a female voice from inside the pile. At the top of this exchange, they're trying to pinpoint her location. They refer to her as the patient. Battalion 5, Battalion 12. Go ahead. Confirming 205. The patient saying she was in 204. 204. Special ops to search group. Go ahead for search group. 
Roger, give me a rundown of the units you got back there with you, please. There's some crosstalk about who is going where, until another rescuer can be heard saying something that sounds like communications with the victim patient. What is apparent is that they aren't exactly sure where she is, the number of people who might be with her, and if any of them are still alive. It's unclear from the dispatch recordings exactly what happened after that, but contact was lost. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Deputy Chief Ray Jadala spoke at a press conference the morning of June 24th. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue at approximately 1.30 this morning responded to a reported building collapse. Uh, to summarize, we had a 12-story, 136-unit uh, apartment complex that uh, had sustained a partial collapse. The northeast corridor of the apartment had uh, collapsed, approximately 55 apartment units. Our units uh, began search and rescue efforts. They pulled 35 occupants that were trapped inside the, uh, the building. In addition to those 35, 10 were uh, assessed and treated. Two were uh, transported to various hospitals. Search and rescue efforts are still ongoing. Uh, we do have uh, operations conducting inside based uh, on you know, additional intel that we're receiving from uh, resources inside. In regards to the number of people missing, we don't have the total missing. Uh, we haven't established that. Early estimates of the missing ran as high as 150, even 200 people. The rescue effort was enormous. All eight of Florida's urban search and rescue task forces were called to the scene. They used sound detection equipment sensitive enough to pick up people scratching or tapping. Multiple search dog teams scoured the site. The pile of rubble was like an enormous jigsaw puzzle, where moving the wrong piece could mean a deadly mistake, either for rescuers or for someone trapped underneath. On top of that, the parking garage, which the building had slammed down into, was filling with water and fuel spilled from crushed vehicles. There were flames, fumes, and smoke. And there was the ever-present risk that the rest of the building, or some part of it, could fall. But on that first morning, many family members were frustrated by what they were or were not seeing. William Sanchez's aunt and uncle were among the missing. No, 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 the, bulb, the rubble's on the side. The building's over here. You can go into that rubble and see if there's, if there's survivors in there. You see it all the time on the news when there's huge catastrophes, but nobody's working on that rubble right now. 
we should get some. I just told the, the governor and I told the mayor. And they said, oh, yeah, there's people on the other side. I said, no, we're standing there. Nobody's doing it. So if we can get that out and get people to go in there, fire rescue, I think it'll maybe save some lives. Can you tell us, tell us what, what, what you're hoping for at this point? I'm hoping that we find people alive in that rubble somewhere there, that we not avoid approaching the area because it might be a little dangerous right now. There might be live people under the rubble, so we should get in there and look for it. On Friday, the day after the collapse, officials confirmed that Sanchez's aunt and uncle were among the victims. But in those first few days, as hundreds of workers pulled 12-hour shifts, Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava tried to reassure the families that rescuers were doing everything they could. There is still hope. We are working around the clock. The fire rescue, they're coming underneath and they're coming on top. I was there, I saw it. They are working in teams all day long, all night long, and they will keep working. They will not stop. We are continuing our search and rescue. We know you're waiting for word. We know you're anxiously waiting for news of your loved ones. And as soon as we have word, we will provide it. This is a very dangerous situation. They must proceed slowly. They have to be careful not to bring down the rubble on themselves and on others that are still there to be saved. So we ask you please to be patient, to pray, and we will pray together. Coming up on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. Hope and heartbreak. It's worse in person. Yeah. than it is in the videos. Hmm. It's okay. It's okay. As the reality of the search and rescue mission sets in, loved ones cry out to the lost in the rubble. They're picturing their family members intact, and that wasn't the case anymore for a lot of people. Also, new clues in the ongoing investigation. This pool deck had been built without a slant. And when you don't have a slant, rainwater just sits on this slab. And it had been sitting that way for 40 years. There's just so many things to be angry about. It's insanity that this was allowed to go on. This was simply a ticking time bomb that was going to explode, and it did in Surfside. That's exactly what happened. All that and more in our next episode Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and appreciation go out to our guests who have so bravely shared their stories with us and other journalists so that we may bring to light the many stories of those impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank all the experts who have joined us to share their expertise. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media. 
Monica Richardson, and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salant and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Edited by Maxwell Carney, Katie Corpy, and Tom Monahan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Music editing by John Sortland. Treefort head of audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound Recording Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.